Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Jonah, chapter 2. Not that there is like a scoring mechanism for any of this, but I get one point, I think, for preaching an entire chapter last week. I think that that should, be, that should count for something. I mean, if, uh, if, if I go too slow and sometimes, then you have to give me the attaboy when we go uh, at a healthy pace. So we'll, we're going to uh, go an entire chapter as well this morning. Uh, it is only 10 verses, so not quite as uh, impressive as last week, perhaps. But we are going to do Jonah chapter 2 this morning. Uh, as a reminder of where we left off uh, in Jonah chapter 1, Jonah got a job that he didn't like. Has that ever happened to you before? Yep, that happens, I think, to just about everybody. He got a job that he didn't like. He, Nathan is saying no uh, for uh, selfish reasons. Anyway, um, yes, uh, we know what that is like. However, most of us, when we get jobs that we don't like, we do not hear the instructions spoken to us in the voice of our God. And that is the great distinction of Jonah's predicament. He is a prophet of God who God has told to go and do what prophets do. Give a message, a message that he did not want to preach. Now, whether or not Jonah's task was amiable to him should not have impacted the actions that followed, but it did. And he decided that this was the line in the sand he would not cross for God. This was the line that he would not uh, go past. He was willing to die before he was willing to obey God in this action. And so rather than go up north and slightly to the east to Assyria, he goes south and west to Joppa to get into a boat. And he is going as far west by boat on the water as he can possibly get to. Some say uh, that although we don't know the exact location of Tarshish, which was the ship's direction, we do know that when Tarshish is spoken of all throughout the Old Testament and Mid-Eastern language, it is always the place of a long sea voyage, perhaps years in the the undertaking, a a year there and a year back. This was not a small journey. Uh, Most people locate it somewhere around Portugal and Spain, which is a long boat ride from the uh, 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 ports of Joppa in the Mideast. And that's where he was headed. So he pays money, and we read in chapter 1, those three, and he went down. He went down to Joppa, and then he went down into the ship, and then finally he goes down into the sea. Down, down, down is the journey of Jonah's heart and he gets into the sea because it's not some great form of self-sacrifice that we should look at with any kind of noble appreciation he's going into the sea because he again would rather die than tell them to turn the boat the ocean take him back to joppa where he will do what god has told him to do he'd said throw me into the ocean what shall we do to make the the seas you know, relent. What shall we do to make the storm relent? And he says, throw me into the ocean and I will die there. And so Jonah has the hands of sailors placed on him and, and he is one, two, three and overboard into the water. I've never been thrown into the sea. Uh, never had that opportunity before. Been thrown into some pools and uh, some lakes that were pretty murky at the time. Uh, gotten into the ocean, but if you are playing in the ocean like I play in the ocean, 
it's not exactly being thrown into the sea. Uh, I keep my head above the surface of the uh, ocean water. Now, uh, I know Ryan has been thrown into the sea a few times, uh, thrown himself into the sea a couple times, but not quite like this, because this is being thrown into the sea in the midst of a horrific storm, the kind of storm where it's not throw them into the sea and maybe you'll float along like a Hollywood movie for a while. This is thrown into the sea, and the waves are such that eventually they are going to crash, and then they crash, they are going to pull you under, and you are going topsy-turvy under the water, down and down, until you finally die. That is Jonah's situation. It says in verse 1 of Jonah chapter 2, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the fish's belly. We left off chapter 1 with the Lord having... Jonah is God's swallow Jonah because God is not going to let Jonah get away with this. Jonah is God's servant. That's what the Bible tells us. And that is different from being a rebel against God's will and an unfaithful, unrelenting pagan. Being a servant of God has different implications. God has told His servant to do something. His servant has in the most flamboyant fashion, completely disobeyed him with no pretense about it. This is not what we do sometimes where we say, "Uh, you know, God, I know that you probably kind of want me to do this, but I'll find some middle ground and do this instead. That's not Jonah. He is going deliberately in the opposite path and God's not going to let him die. And so he prepares a fish to swallow him. And then in chapter two, we get a prayer to Yahweh And notice the the phrase, his God. Again, not a pagan. This is a servant of God. And so he prays to Yahweh, his God, for the first time in the book, uh, in chapter 2, from the fish's belly. And he is going to recount the events that transpired immediately upon being thrown into the sea. And we're going to read it. But I want to just make a, a, a quick point, and it will be fast. I have no plans in doing the book of Jonah to try to present to you some scientific explanation for how Jonah was swallowed by a fish, survived for three days, and was spat out on dry land. Okay? Um, There are plenty of Bible teachers out there who would spend at least a week trying to explain oxygenation levels and different types of mammals who have to surface at different times, and tales from histories about, you know, unsubstantiated accounts of people being swallowed and spending days in a fish and being spit up and on and on and on and on and on. Let me save you a whole lot of trouble, okay? I believe that this account is real because it's in God's Word, and I believe in God. Now, that is a loaded thing to say. In other words, I believe in God... And so, by extension, I believe that God can do miraculous things. Do you understand what I mean by that? When I read about a miracle in the Bible, I don't need to pause and ask myself how such a thing could have happened without violating the laws of nature. Do you understand that? A miracle, by definition, is something supernatural. In other words, it is above nature. It does not concord with the laws of nature. I need not explain to you how Jonah survived in the belly of a fish any more than I'm going to take a Sunday and explain to you how the Lord Jesus managed to come back from the dead. 
I don't know. I can't do that. You can't do that. You can't replicate it. This is something God did. And you know, the miracles in the Bible are not something that you see proposed as everyday events that happened all the time among God's people. Quite the opposite. I did a study on uh, the Redemption's timeline on Wednesday nights this past summer, and we went through the whole Bible from start to finish in large sections. And what you find is there are basically only two major periods of time, three depending on how you classify Moses, but only at most three periods of time when there were human beings walking the face of the earth, performing miracles with any kind of frequency. In all the history of the world, the Bible does not suggest that there are people walking around doing miracles all the time. It says there were basically three periods of time when human beings walked around and performed miracles. One was Moses, and that was at a particular point in Moses' life for a particular plan of God, and some pretty miraculous stuff happens. The other is in the time of Elijah and Elisha, whose ministries bookend and who are dealing with Israel in a time of particular unfaithfulness not far from here. And the third is in the time of the Lord Jesus Christ and His immediate disciples. That's it. So I believe in miracles. I don't expect to see them tomorrow. You know, if I stand on the edge of the swimming pool this summer and I take one step out there, I don't think that if I just believe hard enough, I'm going to float my way on across the other side, okay? And, and when I'm hungry, I don't go and get the last piece of bread and pray really hard and tear it up until I can feed the whole family. I, I believe in miracles as the Bible proclaims them, and that is supernatural events with a purpose happening relatively infrequently in the lives of a few people for God's glory. That's what I believe in. And so this is not going to be a sermon on how a person survives in a fish and how that's not scientifically possible and I don't think we can... That's not the point! Um, So with that to bed, we're going to focus on the point of what happens because it's pretty incredible in its own right. Jonah says, verse 2, I cried out to Yahweh because of my affliction, and he answered me. Now, there's nothing in and of itself spectacular about that verse until you think of the greater context. And what is the greater context? Let me ask you a question. Why would God answer Jonah at this point in time? God had set Jonah up pretty well. Not everybody gets to be a prophet. Not everybody gets to preach on behalf of the Lord God. Not everybody holds an honorable position, a well-known figure in the civilization that they live in. Most of the people in America do not know who you are. They probably never will. I mean, Tyler might become the athletic director of the University of Kentucky, and a bunch of people would know who he is. The rest of us don't, are not on that path. You know, good luck, Tyler. You know, we're hoping for, we're pulling for you. I'm just teasing him. Jonah was in a favorable position. Think about that. He'd been given a nice existence, and the message that he'd been given to preach was a good message. He wasn't given Amos's message, preaching at the same time, death and destruction and rebellion. He was given, despite all your sin, God's going to bless us anyway, and that's what was happening. He was living in a golden age for Israel, not the deep depression, A golden age. And God had given him one instruction 
And what he got was complete ignoring, turning the other way, without prayer or pretext, no negotiation, no, no sobbing, no wrestling with it, just no way. Get in a boat, draw the line, leave. And then after the event of being thrown into the ocean, it says, I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction, because I felt bad about what I'd done. No, no. I cried out to the Lord because I was drowning in the ocean, in the sea. And he answered me. I told you this book is not about Jonah or Assyria or Israel. This book is about God. And this is about the character of God. He is thrown into the sea. He cries out for help after getting what he deserved. And God answered. That is what God does when people cry out to him. He answers. The affliction was not God's wrath on Jonah like he might pour out his wrath on an enemy. The affliction was God's discipline of a son who must be turned around. There was a purpose in this. There was a reason for this. He wasn't going to just kill Jonah, let him die as an apostate. He was going to turn around the heart of his servant through affliction. Now what follows is the cry all the way down until the end of verse 7. It might help to draw a little line in your Bible if you do that sort of thing, or else you need to remember. But what follows is the cry of Jonah while he was in the water, before the fish. Verse 8 and 9 is what he prays in the present tense, now in the fish. None of this is prayed after he is spat out from the fish. This is a very important distinction to make. Otherwise, some of the phrases we will misinterpret as we read this. Down through verse 7, in the water. Verse 8 and 9, in the fish. Okay? It's a poem. Let me give you the structure of the poem that he prays, that he records here. It starts... Out of the belly of Sheol I cried. Now he had time to compose a poem because all of this is from the fish reflecting back on what happened in the water. But the first part deals with Sheol. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried and you heard my voice. Skip down to the end of verse 6 and you'll see the parallel nature of how verse 6 ends. Yet you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. So it starts and finishes like bookends with the idea of this pit, this Sheol, and the, the, the rescue and the rescue alone that God can provide. Then in verse 3, we go into a bunch of aquatic language. What the sea is like. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. The floods surrounded me. All your billows and your waves passed over me. That is bookended. Inside the previous bookend, beginning in verse 5, with more water talk. The water surrounded me, even to my soul. The deep closed around me. Weeds wrapped around my head. I went down to the mornings of the mountains. The earth with its bars closed behind me forever. So in the structure of the poem, it goes like this. A, dealing with Sheol. B, the water. C, the central part of the poem. And then back to B, the water. And then back to A, the pit and the soul. It's a poem. It's bookended each way. Parts A, at the start and the finish. Parts B, right before the start and the finish. And then, out of your sight, is of part C, which is verse 4. 
Then I said, I have been cast out of your sight, yet I will look again to your holy temple. The poem is important because when you understand the structure, verse 4 being there is not meaningless. Verse 4 is the focus. But let's start with Sheol. I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction and he answered me out of the belly of this place called Sheol. Down in verse 6, it's referenced as the pit. The pit. Sheol, the pit, that's language commonly used in the Old Testament to describe what happens when a person not only dies, but experiences separation from the presence of God. God is the God of the living. He's the God of the living. Sheol and the pit represent separation from His presence. What did we read in Jonah chapter 1? What did we read? Go back to Jonah chapter 1. Look at the opening verses of Jonah chapter 1. Look at verse 3. But Jonah arose to flee from the presence of the Lord. Went down to Joppa, found a ship, paid the fare, went down into it. To go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. When he is in the water, he is getting an experience of what it's like to be separated from the presence of the Lord. I've had a couple times when you start to panic when you're underwater and something doesn't go right. And, you know, it's not like these nature shows where they've got these huge lamps that are illuminating the, the, the bottom, uh, what lies beneath the surface of the water. It is dark. And in the midst of a storm, it is violent. And in this panicking situation, he realizes that he is getting something that moments ago while he was on the boat seemed to be what he wanted. He wanted to just be thrown into the ocean and die. There are a lot of people who don't repent of their sin and who don't serve God faithfully because they have wrongly imagined what it's going to be like to face death and separation from God for eternity. They have not thought through what it's like to be without the sun, and without the air, and without the warmth, and without the freedom to move, and the thoughts to think, and the voices to speak, and the ears to hear. All of the basic graces that we experience in God's creation, being immediately deprived from an individual in the resounding finality of death. And it's all gone. Jonah thought he was okay with dying in the water until he was in the water. And then he immediately regretted it. And he cries out to God in the middle of it because he knows that God alone, Yahweh alone, can rescue him from what he was feeling. And he is feeling more than just fear of dying. He is feeling in an instant. It's amazing how much we can process in an instant. He is feeling the weight of dying as a rebel against God. This is not the peaceful dying of a Christian who in faith is looking towards 
a presentation with their Savior, and peace with God, paradise for the thief on the cross. This is a man who is dying and sees as his destination Sheol, the pit. And in panic, because of the stress, he cries out to the Lord who hears his voice. We get in verse 3 a picture of the chaos. For you cast me into the deep. Why cry out to God? Because he didn't end up in the water in this situation by chance. God did this. It wasn't God's hands that threw him overboard, and yet it was. And you're not going to help to cry out to the sailors to reel them back in. You cast me into the deep. Into the heart of the seas. And the floods surrounded me. All your billows and your waves passed over me. If you can imagine the first few seconds of being in the water and struggling and panicking and then deeper and deeper and deeper and the finality of realizing I cannot recover. And the billows and your waves passed over me. Then I said, here is the prayer. Are you ready? Here's, here's the, 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 the realization. Verse 4. I have been cast out of your sight. Yet I will look again toward your holy temple. Now, if you interpret that as Jonah's prayer from outside of the fish spit up on land, you're going to come to one conclusion. God's holy temple is in Jerusalem. Everybody knew where God's holy temple was. You go there and you present sacrifices. If you interpret this as Jonah's cry from inside the belly of a fish, after he has been miraculously and somehow supernaturally spared from drowning in the sea, you might interpret this as God spared me, so by faith, I think this fish is going to spit me up on land and I will look again towards his holy temple. But this isn't from the belly of the fish when he cries this out. This isn't from the coast of Joppa when he's vomited out. This is from the water as he is dying. Do you understand that? And the prayer is repentance. The prayer is acknowledgement. The prayer is faith. The prayer is, I will look upon your holy temple again in heaven with you. I will not be separated from you forever. That is his faith. Now he ran in chapter 1 to flee from God's presence. And in the water in chapter 2, by faith... He is believing, I will be reunited to your presence. I will look upon your holy temple. I have been cast out of your sight, but I will look, see, sight. I will look upon your holy temple again. He is not talking about Jerusalem. It becomes more evident as we move along. The waters surrounded me. See, that prayer is not answered by immediately he's back on land. That's his cry. 
There's a lot in that phrase. It's not a, you know, he didn't cry out a hundred things. It doesn't take very long to drown when you're in the water. It's fast. The water surrounded me, even to my soul. The deep closed around me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I went down to the moorings of the mountains. The earth with its bars closed behind me forever. This world was done for him. He cried it out and he was dying. Repentance, faith, and now I'm going to die. Yet you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. First time we hear Jonah call Yahweh his God. Chapter 2 from the belly of a fish. Verse 8. Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy. But I will sacrifice to you. Now he's in the fish. He's, He's not talking past tense. I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. Um, We begin with the idea of what to do when you realize you are separated with God and you are under His discipline, perhaps facing ultimate judgment and torment. Because let me tell you something, when you have rebelled against God, it can be very hard to know in your own mind whether you truly are a child of God to begin with. And Jonah is not certain at the start of this. And he cries out because the real terror is not simply drowning in the ocean. The real terror is this idea of Sheol and separation of God forever. When you have rebelled against God and you are not doing what He has called you to do, when you have disobeyed Him and disregarded Him, and you face the final moments of affliction of whatever discipline He brings upon you, and understand something, it is a merciful discipline. When you face that, the place to begin repentance is prayer. You know, can I, just a question, and we don't, I don't want to do a show of hands because I want an honest answer, and I'm not sure we would all give one. When is the last time you stopped doing everything, got down on your knees, as all the Old Testament and New Testament people do, prostrate themselves before God, and prayed? When did you do that last? God is need to understand the presence of God in prayer. God is there. And He will answer. And He wants us to call out to Him. He wants us to pray. And repentance begins there. A lot of times we'll do something wrong. Or a series of things wrong. Or we'll get in habitual sin... And we'll think, well, I'll make it right. I'm just going to stop doing it. Have you acknowledged any of this before God? Have you acknowledged your shame before Him? Are you too proud to close a door and get on your knees and pray? Does it look too silly for you to be in a room by yourself talking? This is where Jonah begins. 
crying out to God. And it's not a complex prayer. It's a simple prayer. I've been cast out of your sight. I'm not close to you. Things are not right. But I will look again toward your holy temple. Now, when he gets saved from the immediate peril, there is a more extensive prayer life that begins inside the belly of the fish. And we're reading that now. But it begins with God. If you have sinned against someone, you need to go to that person and make it right. Apologize to your spouse for mistreating them. Apologize to your friend for gossiping about them. Apologize to whoever you need to apologize. But you have sinned against God. Your sin is against Him. What does it say about our closeness to our God? Yahweh, our God. Well, we'll apologize to everybody in the world, but have that conversation with Him. Think about this. Verse 7 says, I remembered when my soul fainted within me. I was to the point of losing all hope. Not just in this life, but eternally. I thought it was all done. Verse 7, this is why we know that the short prayer in verse 4 was more complex internally in Jonah's heart because he didn't have time to say very much in verse 4 when he's drowning and dying. But in verse 7, we get what was happening inside. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered Yahweh. I remembered that He loves me. That I was His servant. That He is faithful to forgive. That He is faithful to hear. That He did not forsake me, but that I forsook Him. That He was with me even to the boat in the very hands that threw me in here. When my heart fainted within me, I remembered Yahweh. And my prayer went up to you into your holy temple. Again, Jerusalem? No. No. The great beauty of watching the Old Testament put together the assembled structure of the tabernacle in the dime of Moses that would give way to the construction of the temple in the days of Solomon is that it's all assembled to resemble in some metaphorical sense and structure the throne room of God. The throne room depicted to us in Isaiah. The throne room depicted to us in Daniel. The throne room depicted to us in John's revelation of Jesus Christ. The true temple of God are where people, are where His creation will dwell with Him. The dwelling place of God will be His kingdom. Remember how we talk about the eternal place that we kind of flippantly call heaven sometimes? You know what it is, don't you? It is the everlasting kingdom of God where His King, Jesus, will have dominion forever and ever and all His saints will dwell forever and ever. That's what we call heaven, not some floaty place in the clouds. And the Bible tells us in Revelation, the last chapter, there will be no temple in that place for God will dwell with them. A temple is a dwelling place of the gods. That's what a temple is always, it's always in His temple of God, a temple. God in his temple where he actually dwells. Heaven hears Jonah's words. 
That's where repentance begins. Repentance requires prayer, a return to God's presence, an account made to Him of the shame that you have brought upon yourself. Jonah prayed the scriptures inside the belly of the fish. Did you know that? There is not one psalm that, Job, that Jonah is praying here. There are three different psalms that Jonah is praying here. Do you know what the psalms are, friends? Songs. Songs. The songs that Jonah grew up singing in Israel, the psalms he grew up reading and memorizing were the psalms that saved him when they came to mind in the belly of the fish. And he begins to pray them. Isn't that how you pray? It should be. I'm not saying you just recite psalms. But when you pray and you thank the Lord Jesus who bore our sins on his shoulders, that's the word of God, that's Isaiah. You thank the one who sees you through the valley of the shadow of death. Psalm 23. You thank the one who is just and will forgive. He prays the scriptures. He knew them. Psalm 119.81 says, My soul longs for your salvation. I I hope in your word. Psalm 130, verse 5, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in His word I hope. There's an urgency to this. Jonah does not have much time to debate whether or not he's going to cry out to the Lord in faith. Same urgency applies to you. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to Yahweh that he may have compassion on Him. And to our God, for He will abundantly pardon. Isaiah 55, 6 and 7. That is our God in Jonah 2. The father who receives the prodigal son. Now, listen to Jonah's words here in verse 8 and 9. Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy. Verse 9, but I will sacrifice to you. You are not like those other gods. I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. Now, that is from the belly of the fish. So I don't think him saying, I will pay what I have vowed, means I will go to Nineveh and proclaim what you've told me to proclaim. Because I don't think that Jonah thought he was getting out of the belly of the fish. Maybe he did. Maybe he thought, well, he saved me from the ocean and so he's going to spit me back out and so I'll go to Nineveh and do what you told me to do. But I don't think that's what this means. I think what this means is I am your servant. I have vowed my life to you and you will have my life forever. I will pay what I have vowed no matter what happens next. You know, Jonah did not invent that language. Turn to Psalm 50, and this is where we're going to close, in Psalm 50. You need to see this. He is praying a psalm of Asaph. He is praying a song of his people. And this is a special psalm. Verse 1. The mighty one, God, the Lord, God, Yahweh, has spoken and called the earth from the rising of the sun to its going down. Out of Zion, 
the perfection and beauty, God will shine forth. Our God shall come and shall not be kept silent. A fire shall devour before him and it shall be very tempestuous all around him. That is, this is his throne room on the earth. This is his kingdom on the earth. In the throne room of God, fire proceeds forth. He shall call to the heavens from above and to the earth that he may judge his people. We read about this in Daniel chapter 7 this morning. Here is the call. Gather my saints together to me, those who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. Those who come to contract with me, a covenant by sacrifice, call them here. Let the heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Hear, O my people, I will speak. Are you listening this morning? Hear, O my people, I will speak. And then, O Israel, I will testify against you. I am your God, your God. I will not rebuke you for your sacrifices or your burnt offerings, which are continually before me. I'm not going to call you to account because you go through the ritual sacrifices. I won't rebuke you for that. But understand how this works. Listen to verse 9. I will not take a bull from your house, nor goats out of your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the mountains and the wild beasts of the fields are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world is mine and all its fullness. Will I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats, the things offered to him in the temple? Now here's the command. Offer to God thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Now you see why Jonah prayed what he prayed. This is the day of trouble. Isn't it? And the Psalms are in his mind in his day of trouble. And what he remembers from the Psalms in an instant of drowning is this. Offer to God thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you. You will glorify me. Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of Yahweh. That's Jonah. You will deliver me. Deliver me back to dry land? I don't think so. You will save me from Sheol, from the pit. Now back to Psalm 50. But to the wicked God says, What right have you to declare my statutes or take my covenant in your mouth, seeing that you hate instruction and cast my words behind you? That better not be you. Every teenager in this room better hear me because teenagers are in a unique position. Some of them grow up learning all about the Bible and assume that because they've grown up hearing all about the Bible, that the God is their God. Hear what God says. 
What right have you to declare my statutes or take my covenant in your mouth, seeing you hate instruction and cast my words behind you? When you saw a thief, you consented with him. You let him take what he wanted. You become a partaker with adulterers, sexually immoral relationships. You give your mouth to evil. Your tongue frames deceit. You lie for convenience, deceive people. You sit and speak against your brother. You gossip. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I kept silent, long-suffering. You know, here's a great question about Jonah. Where is God on the trip to Joppa? Jonah's clearly going in the wrong direction. Why doesn't God show up? Why, why, why doesn't he get in the moment he starts to do the wrong thing? Where's God on the boat? God is long-suffering. He keeps silent. He waits. These things you have done and I have kept silent, you thought that I was altogether like you. What does that mean? And, uh, you know, people, we just kind of shrug off when somebody does something wrong. And, you know, boys will be boys. And, uh, you know, you sow your wild oats. And, uh, you know, you got to do what you got to do. All those little, I mean, how many little phrases do we have to justify the fact that people don't act with integrity? That they don't do the right thing when it's inconvenient. Got an offer I couldn't refuse. I couldn't really hurt it. You can't expect them to do the right thing all the time. On and on and on. I mean, we could write a book with phrases. All to explain what we're like. God says, you thought I was altogether like you. But he's not. Every sin is an offense. An evil. An affront to a holy God. But I will rebuke you. And set them in order before your eyes. That's right. The sea will give up the dead that is in them. The graves will give up the dead that is in them. Every ash will take form. And every man and woman will stand before God. And will give an account of their lives. And before their own eyes, the Lord God will rebuke those who are wicked. Before their own eyes, they'll experience the panic of Jonah in the ocean. Now consider this, you who forget God, lest I tear you in pieces and there be nothing to deliver. Whoever's, whoever offers praise glorifies me. And to him who orders his conduct aright, I will show the salvation of God. A true Israelite, the text is talking to Israelites, is not someone who says I'm a person of God unless they are a person of God in heart, offering genuine praise to him and deed. A person of God is a person of God, heart and hand. To that person, I will show the salvation of God. This is Jonah's plea. The Lord chastises them whom he loves. Psalm 119, David says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. I don't know what affliction God will bring upon you. I can tell you this. I, I was in a a situation, I was in a meeting just a month ago in a house with someone who was in rebellion against God, walked away from the Lord. 
And what I told the person, I told him this, I said, their name. One of two things is going to happen from this point on. Either you're going to go on and live your life in sin and God is going to let you be the pagan unbeliever that this sin represents. And you'll think everything's fine until you stand before the Lord in judgment or He gets your attention down the road. Or your rebellion against God is going to invite His affliction and His judgment and His discipline. And I hope it's the latter. That's a hard thing to tell someone that you hope God pours out the rod on the one whom He loves. And that the person is not really an unbeliever who was never a servant of God in the first place. That's what you hope. Jonah had the privilege of being a servant of God. And man, our God is loving to inflict the damage necessary to turn the servant around so that his soul is not abandoned to the pit. God did the same thing for you. You cry out to God, it doesn't matter how long you've been absent. It doesn't matter how many months or years it's been since you got on your knees and prayed before Him. It doesn't matter what you're involved in. The goal is not to turn around your behavior first. The goal is to go before God and enter into His presence and repent. Before the prodigal son could do anything useful upon his return to his father, he had to be in the presence of his father. That man walked crying in remorse down the exact same path that he had skipped off into rebellion toward. He walked the exact same path back to his father who met him and embraced him and who restored him and loved him because that is what Jonah and all the Bible tells us about the character of God. Even when addressing the wicked, he offers them the sense of urgency. Act now before I tear you to pieces and there be nothing to deliver. If you act now, I will show the salvation of God, of Elohim, says Yahweh. That's the call to you. It's an extension of mercy, merciful wrath. And that's what Jonah experiences. And praise the Lord, we come to the last verse. So the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Repentance accomplished. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, please fill our hearts with psalms and songs of your restoration. Help us to be bold to approach your throne. We have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, who lives and pleads for us. Thank you for the songs that we sing. Father, give us a heart of humility and repentance. Help us to be fast to acknowledge our sin before you. Help us to feel some sense of the impending nature of our death and judgment. And to cry out to you for the salvation you will extend. Bless these tithes and offerings. Help them to be used for your kingdom. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.